Welcome to Request for Commits, a podcast that explores different perspectives in open source sustainability. On this show, we talk to people about the human side of code. We cover everything from community and governance to businesses and licensing. If you've ever wondered how open source projects get started, survive, die, or flourish, then you're going to love this show. I'm Nadia Ekbal. And I'm Michael Rogers. On today's show, Michael and I continue with part two of our conversation with Carl Fogel, author of Producing Open Source Software. Carl served on the board of the Open Source Initiative, which coined the term open source, and helped write Subversion. He's currently a partner at Open Tech Strategies, helping major organizations use open source to achieve their goals. Our focus on today's episode with Carl was around shifts in open source communities and governance. We talked about the role of casual contributors in a world of rising open source activity and how different projects handle this increase in demand. We also talked about cultural gaps between generations of open source and where it might all come together in the future. And if you missed our first show with Carl, make sure you go back and listen to part one of this interview first. So Carl, there are more open source projects today at the order of magnitude higher than there were even 10 years ago um, when you first wrote your the first edition of your book. And there are also more people that are learning to code than ever before. How has this difference in scale of projects and resources changed the open source landscape? Oh, what a big question. Um, I, the thing, the part that I notice, um, which is, uh, and this is, this is going to sound very like curmudgeonly old man-ish, um, is that it's no longer possible to know everyone in open source. And of course, like nobody ever knew everyone in open source, right? But you sort of at least knew their names or you were at most one degree of introduction removed from whoever was running that project over there. And that's just no longer true. Like open source is this just gigantic teeming world of people that, you know, most of whom you will never meet. And uh, that feels different. I mean, I like it. It's, it's like wandering out into a real world instead of a, a clubby little tribe. But it is a very, you have to sort of adjust and realize that you might as well throw away your Rolodex because you're just never going to meet any for everyone at this point. <laughs> um, so that's a very personal answer. Like, how does it feel to me? How does, how does it affect the dynamics um, of the ecosystem, or is is it even meaningful to say the ecosystem, uh, you know, as one unified thing now? Um, it's funny. I the effect it seems to have had is actually that it's forced a greater uniformity and standardization of processes because, like now, now if you're, it's just like light sockets. Like once every building gets electrified, you really have to have a standard socket size because you never know. You're going to use your devices in every building now, so you have to be able to plug in everywhere. And it's the same. Like you, people need to be able to wander from project to project and just get stuff done. And so they're going to look for a file named README, and maybe it's going to have a .md extension. They're going to look for a file named License. They're going to submit pull requests the same way. Uh, they're going to look for a contributor's guide, and it's usually going to be called contributing in the top level of the project tree. Um, things like that those standards have become more important as the diversity, uh, the number of people involved in the diversity of types of projects and of, of levels of skill of programmer have changed. Uh, and I think that's great. Like anything that can make open source more accessible to programmers of all types and all skill levels is a good thing, in my opinion. I don't know if this is an apt uh, comparison, but it reminds me a little bit of something that Rod had said in our episode about liberal contributions, that when you have like, tons and tons of people coming in and a higher volume of contributions, then it's actually counterintuitively harder to change things um, than if you had a, a BDFL or whatever, um, where I think he was trying to say that people who are afraid of giving up control or opening things up 
um, because they're afraid that the crowd is essentially going to change the project. But actually, when you have tons of people involved, it becomes harder to change things. Um, so sort of your, your comment about how a greater scale can actually help standardize things and help make uh, projects more uniform is kind of a good thing, even if it doesn't always seem that way. Well, oh, when you say change things, you mean like change, change the technical procedures of the project, not, not change yeah. like technical yeah, direction, right. feature changes or design changes. Right. It's almost like those structures become more codified, right? Because you just have to deal with yeah. so much volume. Yeah. Um, and actually, I don't, you, it's interesting, you made a contrast there between having a, a BFDL, benevolent, or B, BDFL, sorry, benevolent dictator for life, like the, the, the person who is the final arbiter of decisions when the group can't come to consensus in an open source project, um, versus having a lot of diverse contributors. And I actually don't think there's any contradiction there. In fact, a BDFL is probably, if anything, more likely to happen in a project that's growing rapidly and where lots of people are coming in because it's a much faster way to resolve conflicts is to have a BDFL. Um, democracy, like direct democracy especially, doesn't work very well uh, in a place where the electorate is constantly changing and it's not even clear who the electorate is. Um, whereas, you know, the one thing about a BDFL is it's very clear who's making the decisions when decisions need to be made. And, and of course, I don't, you know, it's not real dictatorship. If people can fork it, then, then dictatorship becomes safe. It's an okay option for governance now. That's an interesting comment. Like, I, I do think that it's more common um, for, for BDFLs or de facto BDFL models because they're, they're never actually codified, right, um, in, in right. projects like this at, at this scale. Um, but also, I mean, I I'm, keep thinking about the sustainability of those projects and if you know, one person is essentially responsible for all the decision-making and maintenance, and they're not growing other people that can handle that burden. Um, in, in this new world where you have all of these casual contributions and all these drive-by like contributors, how are you managing that increase in load? Um, and what's a sustainable strategy to, to, to do that? Well, that's, that raises a really interesting question. Like, like one question I wonder about sometimes is, how do we know whether the Linux kernel is good or bad? I mean, my box is running fine. I'm, I'm not worried about it crashing, but like no one, Linus has been so good at keeping the project unified that there hasn't really been a serious attempt to fork and it. And because there hasn't been, that makes it much harder for anyone who is contemplating it to actually do it. So they, you know, positive feedback loop, they decide not to do it. And so, um, so you never hear about it. But in a project like that, like how do you know whether things are as good as they could be? Maybe there are gazillions of really good patches that just never get incorporated. I don't know. I'm not involved in kernel development at all. Um, but I think for projects like that, um, it's, it's very hard to know, unless you're closely involved, whether the project is actually being successful in its own terms um, or as successful as it could be. Well, I think also, I mean, Linux, the Linux kernel isn't on GitHub, right? I mean, it, it's not dealing with a flood of casual contributions that would come from GitHub. Well, it's, um, but it's not dealing with it. I think I don't think the fact that it's not on GitHub is the reason it's not dealing with a flood of casual contributions. I think it's just I don't think you can be a casual contributor to something as complex as the Linux kernel. There's, there's just too much to learn. Um, I like I'm involved in another project, uh, the Emacs um, text editor, where I've been I'm not one of the major developers at all. Um, I maintain a few of the Elis packages in Emacs. But like, if you're really going to work on the internals of Emacs, there's just a lot to learn. And they could put Emacs, it's in Git, it's not on GitHub, but it could be on GitHub and it wouldn't make a difference in terms of like 
people like the, the, the obstacle to writing a code change is learning the incredibly intricate internals and coding conventions of the Emacs core source code. It's not where it's hosted or, or what the PR process is. So, so I, I disagree with this. More true for the Linux kernel. I, I disagree with this in a couple ways, right? Because I hear projects say that a lot. And, and usually that project has like awful documentation and a shitty website. And those are things that are not <laughs> like very difficult uh, for people to, to, con to actually like technically go and fix. Um, but they're not being fixed because the, the barrier to trying to fix them or engage in them is just too high. Uh, um, and, and because you, know, you don't have people okay. coming in at that level. Example for you. Well, and, and, like be, and because you're not bringing in people it, you know, to fix small doc changes or to or to fix the website, you're not even growing a culture um, that is thinking about barriers to entry. Um, and so, of course, you're going to continue to develop conventions that are very hard to to make it through. I mean, you're, you're right that we don't have a fork of the Linux kernel to look at, but just look at FreeBSD, right? I mean, FreeBSD is a lot easier to contribute to, has done work to to make it simpler to get involved in the community, uh, at least compared to, to Linux. Um, and while it's mm -hmm. not on GitHub, it does have like a huge and thriving uh, localization community. And, and, you know, the number of users of it is significantly lower than, than Linux, but it actually does have like a pretty enviable amount of contributors. Yeah, that's a really... Uh, interesting point. It may be worthy of more study because I haven't looked closely at that project. I mean, I do believe that its user base relative to Linux has been going down, unfortunately, or unfortunately for them. I don't know if that's unfortunate in a global sense or not. Um, yeah. So market share wise, yes, but yeah, but like, market share wise, every market share wise on on servers, everybody's losing to Linux no matter what, <laughs> right? Yeah. I think that their growth rate relative to to themselves, like their growth last year, is actually looking well. Oh, okay. Well, I'm I'm glad because I, I think some degree of diversity is healthy, and um, you know I don't I don't want all of the free software operating system eggs to be in the Linux basket either. Uh, even though I'm a longtime Linux user myself, but just just to um, just to give you a quick counterexample, although I I think what you said it surely is true of some projects, but the ones that I'm most familiar with, who I've looked closely, or, or in one case, am a direct participant, uh, Emacs. Um, it is it is not the case that they have set up extra barriers. There is incredible documentation on how to not just how to contribute, but how to um, understand the internals. There's a mailing list that is uh, ready and willing to ask questions, uh, answer questions and does all the time. And for things like documentation and the website, um, they accept changes all the time. The website just recently got revamped by a total out of the blue contribution from a volunteer who did a great job. It looks great, um, yeah. But the core code is just hard. And there's no, you know, it's just not about being on GitHub. It's just you have to understand how the C source code interacts with the garbage collection, you know, routines and what macros to use. And it's just, um, and how the redisplay engine works. It's just really, you have to spend a lot of time studying it. And that's not going to happen for drive-by contributions. And I think that is, that is also true for the Linux kernel. And there are some other projects where it's true. Yeah, I mean, it just doesn't it just doesn't map with my own experience. Um, I mean, we we just had areas in Node.js that we we never thought that we would end up getting, you know, con contributions to outside of a core group of people that were spending all mm -hmm. their time working on Node because they were just too technically complex. Um, and the more that we opened up, like we yes, we saw a flood of you know contributions of the things that were much easier to get involved in. Um, but over time, people leveled up into those areas um, and and kind of the the the, the funnel to get oh, people. Oh yeah, yeah. In, that's I didn't mean yeah. to say that that doesn't happen. No, that happens. That happens. But I think that the leveling, like that leveling up, 
is going to happen. Do you, do you think that being on GitHub or not would have made a difference in that leveling up? So I, I think that one, you have to have good processes in place and, and a culture of kind of mentorship to, to level people up, right? Um, but if you think about it like a funnel, GitHub is going to increase the size of the funnel coming into that process, right? Like unquestionably. Um, so I, I do think that it would increase like the number of people coming into the funnel. I don't think that it, it, it in and of itself is a solution though to leveling people up. But that, you know, I can't argue that that's not true. I just don't know. Um, and certainly there are other dysfunctionalities in the way the Emacs project is run, uh, although they have been improving a lot lately, um, that, uh, that sort of confound this, this experiment. So, so it's hard to know. But yeah, I think the, the idea of increasing the funnel makes a lot of sense. So, so if I was arguing with you, then I've, I've officially stopped. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, I don't know, there, there's... I think that we should maybe a good thing to study would be to look at projects that have a long history that then decided to move to GitHub, right? Um, and see kind of what yeah. happened there. I mean, I, I have a couple examples, but they're, um, I mean, so for instance, jQuery was one of the first kind of larger projects with a big history to come over. And um, at the time, I mean, pull requests were barely a thing, um, but John Resick spent a lot of time looking at people's forks and then got, like, literally they're off in their own corner just doing something and he's guiding them to do changes in a way that might actually be incorporated later. And so it actually did wow. turn into, you know, a, yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it was a lot of like community management on his part, but it turned into, you know, a, a big change in, in the project and how many people were involved and, and well, but like it's that. also a, it's also seeding a culture that like all every one of those people where he was off helping them with their own, their own fork, not even in the upstream core repository, like they remember that experience, they carry it forward and will, most of them will help do that for someone else later on. You know, I think that's, it's not so much the mechanism, it's just the psychological message of paying attention to people and giving them feedback and, and encouraging them uh, to do the same for the next people who come along. That's what makes the real difference. Yeah, I mean, even the people that weren't directly involved see it because it's happening in public, right? Um, and we had Rob yeah, and exactly. talk about how it's really important that every change comes through a pull request, even from people that have been contributing for years, because then everybody sees it. They see the same review process, um, and it just creates this culture of, of review and mentorship and helping people along. Yeah, making that visible is, is a huge, huge part of a healthy project. I, I completely agree. You know, one of the things you said about, about how the real thing to do would be to find long-running projects that switched over to GitHub without making any other major changes and see what effects that had. Um, that, uh, that reminds me of one of the sort of the, the unfortunate economic realities, which is there are a lot of really interesting research questions uh, in open source. And there just is not that much funding to do them. So Nadia, since you sometimes do have that funding, I hope that you're able to do all these, this research, um, or at least some of it. Um, because this is stuff like for my company, which we do, we help organizations and government agencies launch open source projects and manage them and run them and fix their contracting language and stuff. But I, I'm always looking for the customer that is going to magically pay for us to do that kind of research. And it's very rare that it happens. Very rare. Say that for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, one example is it, there's a couple of projects that have gone from proprietary to open source on GitHub um, and and did so with, you know, good policies of accepting pull requests and, and mentoring. Mm -hmm. um, 
su surprising. Well, not not surprisingly anymore, but surprisingly, if you talk to me ten years ago, uh, Microsoft has been really good at this. Um, they've been, oh yeah, been, it's been amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah they've um, really turned I mean, around. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, Chakra Core is you know a JavaScript VM. Um, it is it is a fairly complicated piece of technology, um, and their their total contributions and the number of people involved you know shot up hugely when when they went open source. Um, but you know they it wasn't just you know putting it out on GitHub. It was also you know having having a culture where the people internally that have been working on it for a while you know have time set aside to review code and mentor people and bring them into the project. So. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, if if the change was was going from closed source to open source, uh, right? I mean, right. sure, contributors shut up like it wasn't possible to contribute <laughs> before. <laughs> That's the, true. the experiment there seems uh, uh, seems fairly clear cut. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Op yeah open sourcing right. your code gets you more contributions. Yes, I think we all agree. <laughs> that <is definitely> true. <laughs> Some of your research for the revision of this book, you were looking at how the CLA landscape has changed. Can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about what's changed um, in the past? 10 years or so and how that sort of dovetails with these casual contributors. Yeah, I think the past 10 or 15 years was a, it was a time of experimentation uh, among CLAs. So for listeners who don't know, a CLA is a contributor license agreement, um, which is basically like there's some upstream open source project you want to contribute some code. Maybe you fixed a bug or you wrote a new feature for them. You send in your changes, but they want you to also send in um, some kind of assertion digitally signed or maybe even fax in like an actual real signature um, saying that you are giving the project this code donation and, and all future donations made via the same mechanism uh, under a certain open source license or under certain terms so that they can incorporate it safely without any fear of legal repercussions later into their code base. So the idea is later you change your mind. You're like, I didn't give you that code to distribute under the new general public license. I'm suing you now. And they can say, well, we have the CLA that says you can't turn around and do that. What some companies started doing, um, and they've mostly stopped now because this got unpopular, uh, although a few still do it, is they would have CLAs that would say, like, you agree that you're donating this code to Project XYZ uh, and that we, company Q, which is a major sponsor or the founder of Project XYZ, are allowed to redistribute your changes under any terms we want. So that includes the terms, the open source license of the project, but it also means that they can make a proprietary fork of the project. And some of these companies did that in order to retain the right to do a proprietary fork, um, which they would then you know, sell licenses to or something like that. Um, so those kinds of CLAs have gotten pretty unpopular because a lot of developers just said, well, I'm not going to give you asymmetrical rights. Like I'm I'm giving you code under license. You're giving the world, including me, code under license. Let's just keep it. Uh, let's just keep it symmetrical, and not give you rights that I don't have. Um, and enough. This became objectionable enough that then, when a company would would set up a or a project would set up a CLA of that style, that there would just immediately be noise. What surprised me, though, uh, this is something I discovered during the research for the book, and I, I have to give a shout out to Bradley Kuhn, who follows this stuff. Um, he's at the Software Freedom Conservancy um, and was able to sort of tell me a lot about what had changed in the CLA landscape and, and point me to examples. Is that not only have um, uh, those particular odious kinds of CLAs become less popular, but CLAs in general have become less popular. Uh, more and more projects have just said, look, if you as long as you certify that you are the author of this code or that you have the right to contribute it under our license to the project and that we can redistribute it under that license, um, then we're good. 
And so that so that's not really a licensing agreement for the contribution. It's called more of a, a DCO, a developer certificate of origin, um, where you assert and usually an email or maybe a digitally signed document of some kind um, is enough to just say like, you know, yeah, this code, you have this code, here's my DCO, and now we don't have to sign anything or have an agreement. So I think uh, the world is moving more toward DCOs. There are still CLAs out there. Some projects have important reasons why they need a CLA. For example, of apps that are going to be distributed in the Apple App Store, um, but are free software under a copyleft license. There are various things about the Apple um, uh, build and production process that get things in the Apple Store, where the, the terms that the project has to agree with, agree to with Apple are not compatible with the GPL. So the developers who contribute all have to sign a CLA with the project where that gives the project enough of an exception uh, to the GPL to be able to sign this agreement to get the thing in the Apple Store, but otherwise the project is on the GPL. Um, so there are some cases where CLAs are still necessary and, and many other cases where projects still use them and people generally agree with them. But I do see a general move away from complicated or onerous uh, CLAs and towards simpler, more lightweight things like DCOs. Um, I think, although I should stress that this is not legal advice to anyone, uh, my business partner and friend James Vasile, uh, who is a lawyer, uh, has observed some of the same trend and clued me into it. Um, so I should give him some credit for, for keeping tabs on this as well. Does that answer your question or did I not? Yeah. No, no, that's that's a that's a very very good answer, um, and and it dovetails uh, great into what we need to talk about next. Um, but first, we're going to take a short break, uh, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to get a little bit more deep on governance policies. Hey everyone, Adam Stakoviak here, Editor-in-Chief of Changelog, and I want to tell you about our cloud server of choice, Linode.com. Head to Linode.com slash RFC, get an SSD server running in seconds, plans start at just 10 bucks a month. And when I say our cloud server of choice, what I mean is that all of Changelog is hosted on Linode. Everything we do at changelog.com is on a Linode server. What I'd like you to do is go to linode.com slash RFC, pick a plan, pick a distro, pick a location and start your server today. Use our promo code RFC20 for a $20 credit. Linode.com slash RFC. And we're back with Carl Fogel. So Carl, earlier you said, you know, the, the scale of open source has led to the standardization of a lot of processes and policies. Um, I, I'm wondering, like, I, but I, from my perspective, I haven't seen a coalescing around particular governance models, um, at least not Ooh, I'm yet. I'm glad you said that. Yeah, I yeah. agree with you. I have not seen it either. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, do, do, you, know, do you have any thoughts on why that might be? Or, well, or yeah, what? I, I do. And this is, this is always a, um, so I, I end up, explaining this to our clients a lot. Our clients are people who are much less familiar with open source than anyone on this call. Um, for many of them, it's their first foray into this. Um, and one of the things we always have to tell them uh, is that governance is not the first thing or even the fifth thing that you should be thinking about. They often, by the time they come to us, they've thought, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna release this thing as open source software. Maybe they've written it already or maybe they're in the process of writing it. Um, and the, like, the first thing on the agenda for that kickoff meeting with us is, is like, okay, what is, we need to write down a governance policy and a clear, you know, membership structure and like all this stuff for how the project is going to be governed. <clears throat> and we're always telling them, oh, 
don't worry about that. Don't even, don't give it a thought. Like just release the code. Uh, make sure that your management, the developers managers are aware that the developers will need some time to deal with incoming questions and pull requests and stuff. And we'll sort out the governance later. And they're always kind of shocked because they brought us in as experts, they thought, on governance. And we're telling them not to worry about it. And the reason is, uh, let's do a thought experiment. Why do we have government at all? Like this, this word governance comes from the idea of like authority structures. And they're mainly, uh, those authority structures exist to help us make decisions about how to allocate scarce resources, right? Like you're, you, we have private property and ownership of, of real estate and stuff. And, and the whole point of government is to quickly and definitively adjudicate disputes over the use and allocation of, of those non-replicable resources. But an open source project doesn't fit that definition. It is replicable. You can fork it. And so you don't need governance. It, to a first approximation, you don't need governance at all. And that's why BFDL works. Or I did it wrong again. B, wait, yeah, BDFL. I'm never going to get that right. Um, you, the reason to have governance is the, the non-shared, the, non, uh, the non-replicable resource, the finite resource in an open source project is not, obviously it's not the code and it's not the, the CPU cycles. It's the developer's attention, right? The thing, the scarce thing that might go away if there's a fork is that everyone might start paying attention to this thing over here instead of that thing over there. And that uh, is a decision that every individual whose attention is in play makes for themselves. So governance is not, it's really a form of marketing or persuasion. Like you're trying, what you're trying to do is convince every developer in the project that every other developer is going to stay here. And so they might as well too, because nobody wants to do a fork where they're the only one forking, right? That's, that's a losing proposition right from the gate. So, so and this is, this is a kind of very cynical way to say it, and I, I don't actually think of it this way, but it's a kind of Stalinist move, like, like how to become Joseph Stalin or any dictator. You convince everyone in a room that everyone else in the room will obey you. And once every person believes that about the people around them, they will obey you too, because it's too dangerous not to. Well, open source is the nice version of that. How do you convince every developer that every other developer really believes in the current leadership structure and in the way things are going? And well, once you figure out how to do that, you're going to have a stable project. So that is not really an exercise in governance. You don't need a police force. You don't need a national defense. You don't need uh, a court system to make that work. You just need persuasion and, and personal skills. Now, we, we can notice, of course, that many projects uh, do evolve some kind of uh, formal governance structure. And, it, and sometimes it involves voting. Usually voting is a fallback mechanism for when consensus cannot be reached, like you know, it's not like they vote on every decision, but everyone knows that the potential to hold a vote is there. And so they, they will sense which way the wind is going on a given decision and just compromise and go with that because they know they would lose the vote anyway, or conversely win the vote. Um, so the reason I think that projects move toward those kinds of governance structures uh, is that once, once a BDFL leaves, that the charismatic founder of the project maybe goes off and does other things or, or screws up in such a way that nobody trusts their judgment anymore, or whatever it is. Um, once that happens, there's not a clear answer for who should be in the driver's seat now, right? And so the default answer, 
the, the solution that everyone can quickly agree on, and, and more importantly, the solution that everyone believes everyone else will agree on is, oh, we'll have some kind of democratic consensus-based governance model, and so that's what they do. Um, because it's the proposal that everyone knows is going to be accepted. So it almost doesn't matter who makes the proposal. Um, and it's especially helpful when you have organizational participants. If you have um, corporations or governments um, or nonprofits who are investing money in the project, um, either through direct contribution or by donating developer time, uh, or should, we should say investing developer time, the managers, the decision makers at those organizations, they feel more comfortable when they see that kind of governance model. And so it becomes, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, like the investment energy is gonna to go to a place whose governance structures make everyone comfortable, even if you never actually have to take a vote. Um, and, it, and in practice, there's usually a few people who have sort of technical leadership just by default because they know the code really well or they have good people skills or a combination of those two. So I think government is, governance is very soft in open source projects. It's mostly not necessary. Um, and it is, it's usually not the most interesting topic. It's way, like, it's way less interesting than like figuring out the right workflow for incorporating uh, contributions and things like that. So do you think it doesn't really matter what model we use? Uh, Whether it's a, yeah, I, is there really just no difference between a well, PDFL or Merchoxy or whatever? Um, I guess I'd have to ask matter for what? Like, what is, what's the, what would yeah, be affected by it mattering? Because I feel like there's a, there is a difference in terms of, and I don't know how to put my finger on it or articulate it, but sort of just like philosophy or or culture or some other very soft word like that, um, especially in how people think about welcoming new people and how they think uh, about handling contributions. Yeah. When it comes to decision yeah, making, like I, I actually have, feel like everyone is kind of the same in some shape or form. There's always some sort of ultimate tiebreaker and how well it's enforced and not. It's like, I don't know. Uh, that, no, that's a good point. I think, I think you're right that um, projects that that have a, a single leader who is the arbiter of stuff tend, I think, and this is sort of anecdata, but I think they tend not to concentrate as much on welcoming new developers and on making the contribution workflow easy, et cetera, um, partly because when it's a single person who feels responsible for steering the project, that person naturally falls back on dealing with the people that he or she is already most comfortable with. And those are the people who are already incorporated in the project and know the procedures. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas when it's a group, um, for a given person in the group, a good way to, to have an influence on the project and to make things, whether it's out of desire for, for personal influence or, or a genuine you know, idealism about keeping the project healthy or whatever the motivations, like one of the best things you can do visibly in a project is get more people into the project. Uh, mm -hmm. As long as those people are, are good contributors and they play well in the sandbox, so to speak. So for group governed projects, there's a natural feedback loop where the group wants to make it possible for new people to come into the group. But I, yeah, and I don't know if I would call it governance. It's all, I, and I've struggled with this. It's like it's, it's about something else, I think. Participation models, contribution models, something like that. Um, yeah, but, but I think no, governance, yeah, you're I think right. Like there's no government. good word for this. Um, yeah. I guess we'll end up, we'll probably end up using governance as the word, but then we'll, everyone will misunderstand what we mean. Yeah. Um, there's, no, there's no help for it. 
In, in Node, we do have a separation between the governance of the project and the contribution policy of the project, because one is like, you know, the formal structure for decision making. The one is like how we get contributions in. Um, but oh, I, I think I, every I, project makes that distinction. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. So, so there is a distinction in, in those policies. But where, where I do think they meld together and, and I, I really love your method of saying, you know, government is there to allocate scarce resources. Right. So how do we identify what the scarce resources are? And I think one of the shifts that's happened is that we, we have all of these contributions coming in that are small. We're not lacking those resources. It's a matter of how do we incorporate those and then. And then the, the scarce resource actually stops being the time and attention of a ton of people and really just the time and attention of those people that are maintaining or trying to get things in. Mm -hmm. And so in a, in a BDFL model, like if the BDFL can handle all of that workload on their own, then there may not be a problem. But um, if they're, you know, usually they're spending time on more than one project, right? So they maybe the BDFL are involved in a ton of different projects. They just don't have the time to do all of that workload. And so... You know, governance becomes a way to share that workload and to have a system by which we can sh we can share the workload and, and make decisions as a group because it's actually less effort on any one individual. Yes. Uh, yeah. Right. Right. It's just like um, management models or something. Right. Right. It, but but where where so like this is like a really good kind of basic economic model. But if you if you look at it in terms of sort of behavioral economics and you go okay well what like let's assume that people are not always rational. Um, I, I think that what we see is that a lot of people don't move to these models. They stay on a BDFL model until they burn out until it's bad for them and bad for their project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that happens a lot. But that's kind of like okay well whatever it takes you know so maybe. Maybe the project has a rough year until they finally get it through their head that they can't go on this way. But it happened on Linux. Yeah. It happened on what? On Linux. I mean, it's still BDFL, but there was sort of like this like time of reckoning where they were like, oh, like we need to fix all these problems that are. Yeah. And I mean, Linux, Linux is the BDFL in the sense that that if there is controversy, everyone will agree that he can resolve it about a decision. But it's not he's not the BDFL in the sense of of he's the only person who can incorporate right. patches in practice. I mean, he's got he's part of a group of people that he has appointed who are all now approved to put those patches in. I would like to hear more about this um, Dumble effect that you've talked to us about before, um, where you you said that you're sort of noticing in today's open source that there you're seeing an increase of more one person projects on, on the one end. And then you had these like very mm -hmm. large um, what you've called B2B projects on the other side. Um, so if we're talking a little bit more about like different project models, mm -hmm. um, however related that is to governance or not, um, what are the emerging norms around different project models that you're seeing? Oh, yeah. So um, what I meant by by the dumbbell effect, um, I, I think that's partly partly a consequence of the standardization of the contribution workflow model around, you know, around whatever GitHub promoted, which is basically the pull request model. Um, which now even not on GitHub is is basically the way other sites work, and and also a result of there being like largely one user facing development and usage environment, which is the browser. Um, I think that's that's an underappreciated revolution. Like it used to be that if you were going to write something that went on someone's screen, you had all sorts of options, like which which widget uh, X Windows or other you know graphical user interface widget library were you going to use. Uh, how is it going to interface with the system? You had to make all sorts of decisions, and it, your code would be incompatible interface-wise and perhaps library-wise with things that had made different kinds of decisions. And now there's this one world, like the browser is, is uh, if you take mobile 
platforms out of the picture, and even they are somewhat browser-based, the browser is like the only platform that matters. Nobody writes native apps anymore, except the few exceptions like LibreOffice and things like that. And what that means is there's, um, there are all these users who learned how to do, they started learning to do view source, and then they started learning that all that JavaScript was minified, and then if they got the unminified copy, they could read it and understand it. And uh, it's just been this tremendous gateway for individual programmers to start making contributions to open source um, because every company's got writing, you know, web programs and they, they've got to find people who can write web code. And so there's this tremendous demand. Everyone knows that's a promising route to go if you're learning to code. Um, and the result is you get this huge universe of JavaScript libraries and, and JavaScript based projects that were started by a person who suddenly finds themselves overwhelmed with contributions coming in from this huge number of programmers because they all agreed that JavaScript and the browser was the way to go for programming. Um, and so that's like one side of the dumbbell is this swelling of, of that kind of project. Um, and like you could really, if, if you were just like some normal journalist and were not really involved in this stuff, you could be forgiven for thinking that open source is essentially just JavaScript stuff on GitHub. That's, <laughs> like, that's what it all looks like, right? Yeah. Um, and then the other side is, is this new thing where companies start using open source releases and, and projects as a, as a strategic move in markets, um, where uh, they, they open source things because they see, they see, for example, that a competitor is moving in on something and they realize that if uh, the first company realizes that if they get first mover advantage by releasing a decent library that's open source, okay, their competitor will use it. But, but the first company has all the employees with the expertise, they have the momentum, they, they will be able to run the project and maintain influence. Um, and the second company won't really have a choice except to get on board. So at least now you've put them in a kind of parasitic position relative to yourself. So you, you gave them free code, but you also uh, hobbled them a little bit. You, you, you coupled them to you in a way that is advantageous for you. So that, um, and that's just one motivation for why it's not the only reason companies release open source. But so the other end of the dumbbell is these these large scale, uh, always, you know, salaried developers funded multi multi company projects um, that as an individual contributor, you're not very likely to to waltz in like, you, you know, I'm sure there are some people who are talented enough and had the time or the the uh, ability to to go in and like, you know, make some fundamental important contribution to TensorFlow. But I have a feeling that most of the changes going to TensorFlow are from Google employees or from employees at other companies who are using TensorFlow and where they have to make the change as part of their job. Um, so that's stuff that requires a higher upfront investment in expertise, and it's, it's only sustainable because there, there are corporate dollars behind it. And then the middle part of the dumbbell is thinning out a little bit, which is what I used to think of as most of the open source world, which is this kind of you know, profusion of apps written in all different languages for all different kinds of platforms um, with different, you know, different GUI widget toolkits and, and things. It's not that they don't exist, but as a percentage of open source activity, I think that's going down. Well, also that middle is, is even, even when those projects exist, they're actually just collections of all of the smaller projects at the other end of the dumbbell, right? Well, yeah, actually, that's another, I never thought of that as being part of the reason, but you're right. Part of what's going on is that there's, there are so many libraries now that most of what you used to have to write by hand, you get from a library. And so you're just, to get whatever done, you're just writing less code to get that thing done. 
Um, but that means that most of the actual open source activity is happening out in the things that are, are your dependencies, which is the, the left end uh, or the first end of the dumbbell. From a sustainability perspective, it, it becomes really interesting that there are all these different emerging models because on the, you know, more like company corporate end, I think sustainability is not really an issue. It's more of, can we actually get people to use this project? And then on the like, very lowest end of people just having very small projects. It's sometimes it's trivial to manage. Um, but then there's sort of like this awkward in between of like, it's big and there are a ton yeah. of people using it depending on this thing. And I don't exactly know where, like what model it fits into for the future. Um, right. I, it's like, I know this thing has economic value for a lot of places, but I, I don't have any clear path for channeling some of that into the maintenance and it's just supporting my work on it. Right. Um, and it's not so big that... Be- it's yeah. like a, it, it goes into a foundation or something either. It's like, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it seems to be the, one of the areas that you've been focusing a lot in your writings, which I'm really glad to see, because there are a lot of important projects that fall in that, that in-between zone where there's, there's just this burned out, you know, lead developer who doesn't know how to sustain this thing. Um, and yet there are all these people depending on it. Yeah. 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 This, this, I think this is a great time for a quick break. Uh, then we're going to dig into that that middle section uh, and how these cultural shifts have affected sustainability in open source. Hey everyone, Adam Stukowiak here, Editor-in-Chief of Changelog. And if you're looking to hire the best freelance talent out there, head to toptal.com. That's T-O-P-T-A-L.com. Hire the top 3% of freelance talent out there the world's best developers and designers, white glove service, risk free trial. That means that if you're not happy, you do not pay. You can hire a developer, you can hire a designer, you can hire both. If you need to scale your team, this is the place for you. To get started, head to toptal.com. That's T O P T A L.com. Tell them Adam from the Changelog sent you. They'll take great care of you. If you'd like a more personal introduction, email me, adam at changelaw.com. And we're back with Carl. Uh, so Carl, we've, we've talked a lot about uh, projects, you know, in, in terms of differences in governance models. And, and I think that there's, we've kind of been taking for granted that this notion of starting a project or, or developing a plan. Um, but I'm curious, you know, how older projects that have a set of policies uh, are affected because yes, we have this huge amount of growth in open source contributions, but it's, it's really happening in these new tools, in these newer models. Um, how do we sustain, you know, existing projects? Mm, that's, um, I'm trying to think of some examples of, of what you're calling the existing projects, just so I can, can draw on them and, and sort of focus the answer a little bit. Are you, are you thinking of things like, like infrastructure projects, like, like, you know, the, the DNS servers? Uh, right, right. That, that's a pretty extreme example. Of? I mean, you could even think of languages like Python or... Um, oh, okay. Yeah, or, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do think that... There is a sense in which software projects reach maturity and they just don't need a huge amount of maintenance or not as much as they used to. Um, I, I get the feeling that like the effort to reach Python 3 is that was probably the, the last big push in Python. I'm not sure. Like, where would the language go from there, right? <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, they're always going to have bugs to fix and there will always be a core maintenance team. And, and there are plenty of companies depending on Python. So there will always be money to support that. 
Well, but the, the, but the world changes around you, right? And the market changes around you. I mean, for, for instance, one yeah. of the problems with Python is that we're moving towards this sort of microservice Dockerized world where um, we actually have fewer resources for each application process. And, and Python isn't particularly good at, at resource utilization in that world, right? And J Java has some of the same problems mm -hmm. as well. Um, and so unless they can you know, get people to work on things that they had not traditionally worked on, like improving VM performance, like um, they, you know, they may not be a, a, as good of a fit as some yeah. of the new languages. Right? And those are major, right. oh, yeah, major I guess, overhauls. I guess I, that's, yeah, there, there are some projects that have longstanding or, or future, like upcoming technical issues that, that one can see down the road. But I guess I sort of, I feel like, the, the question of whether it is important for Python to solve that problem will be answered by whether Python solves that problem. If it's, if it's really important to someone, and by someone I mean some company or group of companies, uh, who are the, that's the kind of resources it takes to pay for things like that, uh, really need it done, of course it will get done. I mean, they'll fork Python if they have to, I right? Think that's, um, I, don't, I mean, that's sort of a tragedy of the commons kind of mentality, though, right? No, I don't think so. Like someone out there will take care of it, but sometimes it doesn't. No, get no, it's that's. I think the tragedy of the commons, um, to the extent that it exists, is a different thing. That's that's when every company is sitting back waiting for someone else to take care of it. I think that's what actually happens to a lot of projects. Uh, hmm. We might we might think well, surely a com company that depends on this will make it happen, um, and then I hear from maintainers like, why is nobody stepping forward? Well, like uh, you mentioned Emacs earlier, right? And and you said that Emacs has done a lot of change. Emacs has made a lot of changes in you know how you contribute and stuff like that. And um, as the the model, as the profile of an open source contributor has changed, Emacs has been able to continue to change along. And it's certainly not done. I don't think Emacs will ever be done, <laughs> but it, it clearly is moving forward. Oh, no, I mean it's been thirty years already, and it's still not done. But but actually, both Emacs and Python. And, and probably almost every project we've talked about, there's a pattern that keeps happening in them that is really important that I think answers some of this question, which is that they all grow some form of extensibility mechanism, a plug-in system, you know, uh, add-ons. Um, in Emacs' case, Emacs Lisp is a full programming language with, you know, the, the ability to just have modules um, that are separate from Emacs. And what happens is that a lot of the interesting creative work, the the, the places where uh, maintainership energy would normally go end up happening in these satellite projects. Like in Emacs, um, I would say some of the, the most interesting stuff in Emacs is actually happening outside the Emacs tree in the org mode project. And, you know, org is growing by leaps and bounds. It's got a lot of happy users. It's got its own conference, I think. I mean, it's incredible. And that's, that's all happening in Emacs Lisp, the programming extension language that is used to program Emacs but it's not part of the Emacs project officially. Similarly with Python, like there's tremendous stuff has been happening for years in the, the scientific Python community, you know, the sort of the big data and, and mathematics, Python libraries, communities. But do you consider that stuff to be part of Python or are they separate projects? And I, I think the, what happens is the, the energy moves out to, as soon as you grow an extensibility mechanism, the energy moves out to these things that from the point of view of the central project are satellites, but are actually, you know, core things to their own communities. Right. I, I think that one of the problems that you 
that you do run into though is that now that the energy has moved into this ecosystem right um and it's a lot of smaller projects that are not centralized in this place um that new community that's building around that has a very different set of expectations about what it's like to contribute and what the kind of barriers to entry might be and how easy that might be. Um, and if the if the core that the ecosystem is built on remains really difficult to work on and, and doesn't adjust any of its governance policies, then all of that energy that's happening in the ecosystem may be happening on top of a project that is not sustainable and can't continue to move forward in the best interest of its users necessarily, right? Well, I mean, now, now we're addressing a different question. If the idea is that the original core project is difficult to contribute to, um, specifically because of policies rather than just being technically difficult, um, that's, that's a different problem. But I. I don't see that many projects actually in that situation. Um, I mean, maybe if you can give me some examples, uh, we could look at them. But but generally, these core projects, like the reasons that they lose maintenance energy is just because they've kind of reached maturity and and the core is now very large. And like, you know, if you want to make a change to it, you also have to add a regression test because you got to make sure, you know, and you have to make sure your change passes all the existing regression tests because there's such a huge legacy installed base to take care of. Um, that it's just the core is always going to move more slowly over time. Going back to the economic model, right, where you're, you are competing for developer attention to some extent. Um, if there's this huge ecosystem of projects that are easier to contribute to, aren't they going to take a lot of the resources out that would be, that, that could potentially be mm -hmm. dedicated to maintenance if the, if the policies there don't change? And I mean, I, I don't mean this in terms of, you know, the policies have gotten, you know, worse over time or something. It's just that the expectations of people has, has changed, right? I mean, if there's, a, if there's a core group of people that are really comfortable with a contribution policy and the rest of the world and even their own ecosystem moves on to policies that make it much easier, um, that core isn't, all that incentivized to change for the people that are already there. Um, it's really an opportunity cost that they're missing out on. Right. Um, I think it's sort of that uncaptured thing that we're not seeing. Well, we're, but it sounds like we're saying it is getting captured just by someone else. Like, you know, maybe people who would be fixing core Python are, are writing SciPy stuff instead. Isn't that, um, yeah. I mean, if it, is it a zero sum? Are we talking about a zero sum game or a positive sum game? I guess is my question. At some point, maybe it's zero sum because we only have 24 hours in the day. But um, I mean, you can work on multiple projects, but yeah, at some point you only have so much yeah. time. I, I, guess it's, I guess the reason you're, you're hearing me resist the thesis is I don't, I don't have any, I don't know of any good way to evaluate the question of whether a project is getting as much resources, as much developer time as it, quote, should, unquote. Because I don't know what the should, like, well, this is a hard thing no. about any sort of, I guess, software infrastructure is um, the tension between do you just build something new or move on to the next thing when the old one has run its course, or do you try to reinvest back into older yeah. projects? And I, I, I get that like software will always move a lot faster, or anything digital will move a lot faster than um, anything physical. But um, part of me wonders whether we just accept that norm of oh you know we just move on to the next project or whatever um because there is there are no resources available for people to improve existing ones um yeah it's just a i i don't know i don't know how to make the argument that the places people are allocating the resources now are the wrong ones and that they should be allocating them in some other way instead because whenever i look closely 
at how someone is allocating their time and attention, I can see the reasons why they chose to do that. And I don't see a convincing way to, to say to them, oh, you should be doing this other thing instead. I don't either. And I think that's part of the problem. I mean, <laughs> I, I certainly that, never, I, like, I never dreamed that I would be making a market fundamentalist argument. I'm the well, <laughs> last person to do that, but I guess I kind of am. Welcome. Yeah. Well, back to your point that like, if it gets bad enough, there will be a fork, right? I, I think that, that that's, that's sort of like your, your escape hatches that like the, the reason that the market is, is quote unquote, the market is going to figure this out is that if it gets bad enough, there'll be a fork. Um, oh yeah. And, yeah. and, but, and, and certainly that has happened and could happen, but the problem with that being the, the main approach that we have or the, or the only recourse that we have um, is that th there's a fair amount of time that it takes for the situation to get bad enough that there's a fork. And then it takes time for that fork to ever take over or get to the point where it would be merged back. And so th that time that you lose in, <laughs> in you know, that, um, that tension getting worse mm -hmm. and worse and worse um, during that time, we, we, we could, just move on to something else. Um, and not because it was necessarily good for that community or good for that project or that the technology to run its course. It was just that we had this particular artificial barrier that created this tension. And then that meant that no work was happening for a particular amount of time. Mm -hmm. um, and, and also I'm not convinced that we necessarily move on to a new thing. Like if we move up the stack, we tend to just forget about things that are bad at the bottom end of the stack. And we end up with problems like open SSL, right? Where we, we, we <laughs> very good we, example. We, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we have we have very good methods by which we can um, forget about how bad a project might be run or what state it might be in in terms of sustainability by just isolating it rather than dealing with the problem. Um, and, and that and that's that's a very <laughs> problematic way to do. Yeah, it. my you know, it's funny. My the argument I've been making reminds me of, of one I hate, like like I think I think George W. Bush actually made this when he was governor of Texas, they, like. Basically, there are these prisoners on death row and some of them were innocent. And these like, you know, nonprofit volunteer run student law clinic things would go and do all this research and prove that the person was innocent and finally get them off death row after years and years. <laughs> and like, you know, every obstacle in the world being thrown at them. And, and when that happened, you know, the governor who had not ever, you know, pardoned them or anything would say until the evidence was clear, would say, see, the system works. Yep. That's <laughs> you gotta, now, Carl. We, You're like George W. Right. Bush. <laughs> yeah, that's, so I'm sort of saying, yeah, like, look, things get really, really bad and, and, and people move heaven and earth to make the right outcome happen. And like, hey, look, the system worked because they could fork. Well, and I, that's um, like my fundamental, I guess, like for coming from a nonprofit background from way back in the day, it's just sort of like boggles my mind that like, yes, in the nonprofit sector, for example, like people, no one expects to get rich in nonprofits. But like you get a salary. I mean, you get like there is money flowing into the nonprofit sector in some shape or form. And to suggest mm -hmm. that like there should just be no money flowing in or like it, it or that like, you know, if it works because volunteers do everything, it's fine. Like it, it doesn't Well, sure it might get done. But like, is that really the right way of doing things in the world? Is that as is that as good as we could? Well, well, I'm not sure that I mean, the, the question of whether something is done by volunteers seems to me to be a separate one. Um, I mean, I think there, are, there are a number of projects where someone is maintaining something on the side where that thing helps them do their day job, but it's also kind of a personal project and it's, you know, they're sort of semi-volunteer, but not completely volunteer. Um, but then there's also a lot of open source that is under-resourced, but the resources it has are salaried. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And I think that's like the, 
why I'm still wrestling with the original question I've had coming into this space of like, if you have money, where does it go? I still think it's a very, very hard question yeah. to answer and one that is like extremely delicate. Um, but I know that the answer yeah. is that there must be more that can go in there somewhere. And I just, I want to be really careful about where it goes. Um, I, I, think, yeah. I, no, I, I completely agree that that's a, a huge priority and I'm glad you're focusing on it. Um, and my answer really? hasn't been terribly helpful, I think, in, in providing any guidance on that. Well, I think that we're very good at, at fixing crises, right? Like if something hits a point of crisis, then we have mechanisms by which to fix it, right? Oh, like we, we, right, right. Like we, we can deal with heartbleed. We can't deal with, you know, the situation that OpenSSL was in 10 years ago when, you know, it was obvious to everybody involved in the project that something was wrong. Yeah, <laughs> um, you know what? we had I, no mechanism wish, to fix it. I, I, would, I wish we had, and like maybe, maybe Nadja should be the executive director and, and you all can be the board, is an open source weather center. Right. Where where you're you're funded to just keep a lookout, keep in touch with a lot of projects and identify whenever a certain kind of intersection happens, an intersection between a project that a lot of people depend on and that project showing signs of burnout or under resourcing. And like just say, hey, here are the warning signs. Here are some people to talk to or, or like you could be the go to people for foundations or, or companies who are looking to help. I think CII is doing that a little bit. And, and I think that that works bit. for projects that have been around for about 10 years um, or, or maybe even five. I think that the troubling thing is that this is we're, we're we're coming into contact with this problem and recognizing this problem at the same time that we're also recognizing that all projects are getting more distributed, that they're becoming collections of all these little tiny things with these incredibly complicated dependency chains. And so um, the idea that you could have a centralized weather center that then talked to centralized projects or looked at centralized projects to try and figure out what the state of the ecosystem was, it, it, it's getting less and less practical mm. uh, as we move into that future, well, right? Or maybe it's it's inherently it's built into the nature of the solution that you're envisioning, because like if you're going to allocate money somewhere, that's an inherently centralizing thing to do. Like the money's got to land in some bank account somewhere. And so the, the trick is just to identify of all these myriad, you know, moving parts and intricate interdependencies, which are the which are the key things like OpenSSL or say, you know, or one of the JavaScript libraries that everyone depends on. Which are the ones that that are really going to be in pain, and that everyone's going to feel that pain? Where we can just see it coming five years ahead of time. Can Some we do of it is now? also structural, right? It's like, should we build this way, or are there bigger ways of like thinking about reorganizing mm -hmm. entire systems that should be that work should be happening, and it's not? Um, I, like, yeah. uh, and I know some people are thinking about this around like DevOps, for example, and I'm trying to figure out like, shouldn't we have like X Y Z set of projects that like together can I don't know, just make a better system versus like cobbling together from all these different things right now. That's sort of like bigger work than any one project to it. Um, yeah. sort of actually, one of the reasons, and I'm, I'm going to try to squeeze in this observation because I know we're running out of time. One of the reasons I'm uh, focusing a lot of my work on and, and our company's work on helping governments get more involved in open source is that dis despite their reputation and despite what we <laughs> see in the current U.S. presidential campaign, Governments are, in some ways, really good at focusing on long-term questions. Yes. Um, and that's partly, especially in, in the U.S. and similar systems, it's partly because there's a civil service that has such good career and pension guarantees that people stay in their jobs for 30 or 40 years. 
And now that's in the tech world, we think that's horrible. And we're like, how can somebody possibly still stay you know, skilled and relevant in tech for even 10 or 15 years, let alone 20 or 30? But from a long-term open source project sustainability perspective, the more government dependency we have on open source and the more government engagement and funding of open source we have, the more there is a force for long-term trend observation and, and solving of problems in open source. And one of the problems that we have is that open source is rooted in a personnel sense in the tech industry right now. And that's yes. people who switch jobs every three years, you know, and that's considered long. So people's, the indi actual individuals involved, their priorities keep changing because their jobs keep changing because it's such a fertile field for, for new things happening. And there's, there are not that many institutions that have long-term personnel uh, involved in open source. And I think that we see that causing problems in open source as a whole. And it's a fantastic observation about software in general. It's just like, I mean, it came from a very fast, very high growth, um, very capital, <laughs> capital flush um, sector. And, yeah. and so that yeah. changes how we think about it. And, but then it's like, well, if you look at it in economic terms, like open source doesn't actually fit into that at all. It's much more like a public good. And where is right. the institution that supports that? And it's like, yeah, government tends to do that for all other aspects of life, but it doesn't do it here. Um, and it's not going to be, you know, as easy as just be like, oh, you know, now we have an agency that deals with open source and government because yeah. that would also be weird and um, in some ways probably awful. Um, but trying to figure out how you get those like longer term thinking institutions to care about something that is a longer term question within software um, that yeah. often gets overlooked. I think that's that's the challenge. Yeah. Like what is what is the actual level of state dependence on the Debian project versus the level of state funding that's going into the Debian project? There's probably a huge imbalance there. Yep. Is is part of the struggle getting government into open source this this differential that they're thinking more longer term and that the the communities that are trying to engage in uh, around open source are a little bit too short term and distributed? Um, I don't I don't think that's what's preventing them from getting involved. I think it's um, it's partly that the the actual personnel like the the people in IT and government are historically they're just not they're not coming from a background that would have had them involved in open source um the managers don't have background uh and and especially the the elected officials at the top of these command hierarchies their main concern is risk aversion like they don't want to do anything that can embarrass them or give their opponents something to work with and open source is just more exposure right like if you if you launch a technology project and it fails and only your department ever knows about it, that's okay. But if you launch it on GitHub and then it fails, now someone can write a uh, some journalist can write a report about that, and you can end up in Linux Weekly News, and then your opponent can hold it up at the next debate. So I, I think it's more just a, the general culture of government is is kind of incompatible in some ways with open source. Right. There's a lot of churn on GitHub. It's sort of baked into the system that if you do things as much, many of right. them are going to fail. And, and yeah. yeah, well, this was this was the exact argument. We, we actually saw this debate play out with Solyndra, like the, the U.S. government gave uh, some form of loan guarantee. I don't know the exact structure, but some kind of subsidy, essentially, to a bunch of solar power and other clean energy companies. Solyndra was one of them. And in fact, the, the government actually turned out to have been a pretty good VC. Um, it's it's you know, it's successful investment ratio was not bad for those solar investments, but Solyndra was a pretty big fail uh, in that set. And so the administration got hugely slammed for something for a portfolio that any VC would have been happy to have. 
And it just it shows you how different the incentives are in government. Oh, man, I, I think that we have to leave it there. But uh, I anticipate probably having you come back to talk just about this government and open source. <laughs> oh, I'd love to do a, a podcast on that. And you guys, I really just I, I feel bad for talking for so long um, because you when you when I let you speak, you had such really interesting things to say and, and good prompting questions and stuff. I just I love these conversations. So happy to do it anytime. Yeah, yes. that was fantastic. Thank you, guys. Bye. Thank you. I'll talk to you later. Thank you.